and welcome to the MacGyver Report, Wisconsin This Week. Whether it's interviewing the newsmakers of the day, reporting on the truly important stories that you just won't see in the mainstream media, or bringing you the latest cloak and dagger capital intrigue, the MacGyver Report is here to keep you up to speed on all things Wisconsin. From our palatial offices right here on Madison's Capitol Square, we bring you the stories that really matter to you, the taxpayer and give you our incredibly expert analysis and unfaltering insight that you can only get, or so we hope, from Team MacGyver. Now fueled by gallons of rich, delicious, mountain-grown coffee with beans grown in the garden of Bill Osmulski's Venezuelan villa. <laughs> I am Britt Hume and or Matt Kittle. Welcome aboard to this edition of MacGyver report Wisconsin this week. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. I'm Ola Lasowski, MacGyver Education Analyst. And I'm Bill Osmolski, MacGyver News Director and Coffee Farmer. We hope you've been enjoying these <laughs> Thank podcasts. Thank you, Juan Valdez. We appreciate your time. <laughs> we hope you've been enjoying these podcasts. And so make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. Now, today we're going to spend some time talking about the latest developments in the John Doe investigations. This story stretches over the course of eight years now, and to the casual observer, it's been defined by a series of examples of abusive and out-of-control government investigators, most notably the pre-dawn paramilitary raids on private homes in October 2013. A new report by the Wisconsin Department of Justice last week reveals it gets much worse. We now know the go that government abuse of power was not halted even when the Supreme Court demanded it. And in addition to those pre-dawn raids, the government began spying on private citizens. To briefly summarize the John Doe story so far, back in 2010, a Milwaukee County worker posted a defense of then-candidate for governor Scott Walker on a Journal Sentinel story during work hours. So a judge gave the Milwaukee County DA permission to start a John Doe investigation, now called John Doe 1. That meant the government could conduct its investigation in complete secrecy, and if anyone, com could, and if anyone complained, they could be charged with contempt of court. This also made it very easy to expand the scope of the investigation. Eventually, the DA got the idea that the Walker campaign might be working with conservative nonprofits behind the scenes on policy issues. That's not a crime, but the judge gave Milwaukee's DA permission to look into it anyway. That's now called John Doe 2. Four other county DAs, plus the Government Accountability Board, the GAB, jumped on board to help. This investigation in those pre-dawn raids, plus dozens of subpoenas to seize private bank records, emails, and other documents from conservatives. The Supreme Court eventually stopped John Doe II. The judges said it was unconstitutional and violated the target's First and Fourth Amendment rights. The court ordered that everything the investigators took from the targets had to be given back. As we know now, that did not happen. Many of the records were leaked to the Guardian newspaper last year, and as Attorney General Brad Schimmel's report last week revealed, that was just the beginning. 
We now know that the government's abuse of power continued despite a court order, despite reorganization of the state's ethic watchdog. We now know that there were taxpayer-financed attempts to ruin careers with political motivation, committed by the very agency meant to protect against those crimes. Now, our very own Matt Kittle has been following this story from the beginning. Matt, the AG discovered the scope of John Doe 2 was so expansive, people are now calling it John Doe 3. What does this all entail? It entails a much more sinister, darker, government-sponsored investigation than even the conservatives who had their homes raided imagined it could be. What we learned is, Ola, you talked about John Doe 3. That's what the uh, Attorney General, the Department of Justice investigators called it because it's a name for this kind of parallel investigation that occurred along the lines of John Doe II that was much more expansive, broader, and as we know now from the 90-page exhaustive report from Attorney General Brad Schimmel, uh, it involved a lot more conservatives, it involved a lot more average citizens, a massive spying operation that included churches, members of churches, conservative talk radio, again, average ordinary people that had their lives spied upon through their email, their electronic communications. They had no idea. Now they're just learning. Dozens, scores more possibly, and this could be just really the tip of the iceberg. What we found out from the Department of Justice report are a couple of significant major takeaways. We found out that, again, there was this investigation that was going along that went deeper than anybody imagined it would be. And the question is, who authorized it? Right. Uh, we'll get into that momentarily. But also in the findings, we learned that the agents of the Government Accountability Board, for instance, failed to follow the directive, the order from the first John Doe judge, the John Doe judge in um, John Doe II. In January of 2014, the judge in that John Doe said, you have not delivered probable cause that a crime has been committed. This thing needs to stop and you investigators and prosecutors need to stop looking at the illegally seized evidence that you took. They failed to do that. As a matter of fact, they continued to process that information. And as a matter of fact, they continued to process that information and hold it on these uh, files that were referred to by GAB officials as gold from the information that they're gathering. And more nefarious than all of that, we found that they were putting that in files, boxes marked opposition research. As bad as the John Doe investigation was imagined by conservatives. And remember, early on, there were conservatives who were targeted in this who said as much, who said this is nothing more than state-sponsored, taxpayer-funded opposition research now it appears they were validated in that response, in that um, descriptor of this investigation. We also found that uh, agents put, collected ma these materials, hundreds of thousands of pages of documents on external hard drives. We'd known before in, in previous releases of court information that the GAB in Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office, led by a very partisan Democrat nonetheless, 
that they were communicating through Gmail accounts offline so that nobody could access them. They wanted to do that for a reason so that if there were a records request, they would never discover that. And the argument is that they would never be found out just how abusive their investigation was. There's a lot more included in this report, but ultimately at the end of the day, we found a series of crimes. That's what the Department of Justice found, a series of crimes committed. And while this all relates to the illegal leaks of hundreds of pages of John Doe documents to the British liberal publication, The Guardian, in September 2016, or at least that's when the story on the John Doe was published, um, this is a year-long investigation by the Department of Justice that found the constant collecting of this information and the possible usage of that information against political enemies. Thank you, Matt, for that really thorough roundup of, of some of the things that we found here. Now, investigators can't just start a John Doe investigation on their own. They need a judge to authorize it and to expand it. So who authorized John Doe 3 and who ran it? It's a great question, Ola. We know principally who ran John Doe 3, the same people, the same bureaucrats and the same prosecutors who run, ran John Doe 2, and many of them from John Doe 1. These are folks like Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm, who ultimately oversaw all of this. At least that's his department. He's responsible for it. But his agents, Assistant District Attorneys Bruce Landgraf, for instance, David Robles, uh, Robert Stelter, who was an investigator in that office, many others from the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office, and of course the old Government Accountability Board, Kevin Kennedy, who was up until June of 2016 the director of the Government Accountability Board and its lead counsel, and Kevin Kennedy, of course, as we found out earlier on with the John Doe uh, disclosures, was a good friend of one Lois Lerner, the, the um, uh, IRS's Lois Lerner uh, and her division that targeted conservative nonprofits. As a matter of fact, Kevin Kennedy and folks from the GAB at one time had reached out to Lois Lerner asking her about the IRS possibly involving itself in the John Doe investigation. We know that guys like Shane Folk, who was the lead attorney in the Government Accountability Board's investigation, parallel investigation, and there really wasn't parallel, it was all connected to the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office. They were partners in this uh, crime, if you will, this abuse of power. Uh, that Shane Falk was there. Remember Shane Falk back in 2008 testified before the Government Accountability Board saying we need to find ways as a Government Accountability Board to get around the First Amendment and the Constitution to go after issue advocacy in this uh, state. So none of this is too surprising to your question of who authorized it. That is really the meat of the matter because according to the DOJ's report, it doesn't look like anybody, any court authorized this. They just continued to go and continued to push their investigation into just about every right of center group in the state of Wisconsin, even without authority from a court, a John Doe court in this case. So all this new evidence, where did it come from? These boxes in the basement of the GAB, like were they down there the whole time? Uh, no. Uh, well, we should say we don't know that definitively. What we do know is that 
the Department of Justice launched its investigation into the Guardian, the leaks to the Guardian, back in December of 2016. Along the way, it uh, served, had to eventually serve a warrant on what became the Government Accountability Board's successor agency, that's the Wisconsin Ethics Commission, because they weren't getting the information that they requested. Uh, the agents from the Department of Justice would go in and they would say, give us what you have, that you still have, from the John Doe investigation. And the agents at the Ethics Commission said, this is it, this is all we have. The agents would start looking at the material and they'd say, this doesn't add up. There are missing pieces of this puzzle. They'd say, you've obviously got something else. Oh yes, well we have this for you. This was several times throughout uh, late winter, in the spring, and into summer, eventually in July, the Department of Justice had to serve a warrant. Uh, and along the way, that's where the bureaucrats at the Ethics Commission came back and said, hey, we found these boxes, this box of information, and it had Shane Falk's name on it. You remember Shane Falk? Uh, he of uh, leading this investigation at the Government Accountability Board up until he left in August of 2014. Uh, it also had the information of uh, the, the files with opposition research and Senate opposition research. on All this stuff just kind of um, by drips and drabs came to the Department of Justice when it should have been turned over right away. And what they found out was that definitely we have the uh, GAB agents and the district attorney's office failing to comply with the order of the Wisconsin Supreme Court that said in 2015 you got to turn all of this information back over. So yes, this, this information was eventually turned over, but again through installments and what we don't know is were some of the files, some of the boxes, were they brought back in from the outside? Perhaps if there was fear that some of these folks' homes might have to be served with a warrant? Well, clearly this evidence was never going to be returned unless this new investigation, which in effect turned out to be a compliance check, you know, hadn't started, you know, digging this stuff up and, you know, I, and, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm stuck on the point that the Supreme Court said, hey, ordered these investigators to return this evidence. And two years later, this big box of evidence turns up and it has Shane, it literally has Shane Falk's name written on it. Right. One of the investigators. Clearly that evidence was not returned. So what happens to Shane Falk? What is the consequence of not obeying that Supreme Court order? You know, you've been in the news business for a long time, you too, Ola, we all have, and of course all of those questions come up as we go about uh, trying to put together the pieces of the John Doe. But I am asked that question repeatedly across the state of Wisconsin from people who have followed the story or maybe they haven't, they, they haven't followed the story as close as they might have liked or what have you. So we know that there were abuses here. What happens to the people who committed those abuses, these government bureaucrats, these prosecutors, these investigators? So far, what has happened to them is absolutely nothing. Whether the district attorney's office agents received prosecutorial immunity, which is tough to beat when you're filing lawsuits or what have you, whether it is because we have um, feet dragging and delays from government agents or whether it's because the Supreme Court in this particular case which off which which said return all of this stuff this is the order of the court if you do not you are to be held in contempt of court 
They never followed through on that, even when there was evidence to suggest, more than evidence to suggest, clear evidence to show that uh, these folks had violated the court order. Now is the question of what happens next with those sorts of order violations, because it's very clear that you have Shane Falk, the Government Accountability Board agents, Nathan Yudnick, and some of these others, who did just that. They violated the John Doe order. Now that's something for the John Doe judge. But they also kept all of this stuff in violation of the Supreme Court order. That, to me, would be a contempt of court charge at the very least. Now, in the Department of Justice report, while the Department of Justice couldn't definitively say who leaked the information to the Guardian. They're pretty clear in the report that they believe it came from within inside the GAB, and they believe they know it comes down to a couple few people, maybe one in particular. They can't definitively say that, so they're not going to bring charges on that front on the leaks, but the Attorney General has recommended that the John Doe judge in this case bring contempt of court charges against the Milwaukee County prosecutors. The special prosecutor in the case, um, Francis Schmitz, the former Government Accountability Board agents involved, Kennedy and Falk and Yudnick and uh, Molly Nagapala, some of these others, uh, and contempt charges against perhaps some of the agents of the new Government Accountability Board, the Ethics Commission. Uh, and he's also recommended, the Attorney General has also recommended that Shane Falk uh, confront some disciplinary review from the, the Board of Lawyer Regulation in this state. Whatever happens is, will be determined in the coming weeks from the principal players that be. But make no mistake about this, Bill. Make no mistake about this. Simply because they couldn't connect all of the dots to the people or the person who leaked this to the Guardian does not mean that there wasn't wrongdoing, that there weren't crimes committed inside the GAB and in the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office with this very sensitive court-sealed information. Now, what about this missing hard drive? Isn't there some kind of chain of custody for something that sensitive? Someone in the department who must have signed for these things? Yes. <laughs> the short answer is yes. At least there should be a chain of custody. Any DA will tell you this. Any investigator will tell you this. There is a chain of command. There is a chain of evidence. And that chain of evidence was just obliterated by sloppiness and bad procedure. Some suspect by design. They didn't want fingerprints on this because, well, if you do an investigation from the Department of Justice and it comes back, how do you definitively point to or find the person ultimately involved? And so that creates charging problems. Now, be that as it may, we had in this 90-page report incident after incident of just criminal uh, negligence on the part of the government bureaucrats on the part of the district attorney's office. We had no uh, method, no system of signing for evidence, no method, no system for understanding who had the evidence the last time. And with this hard drive that was the property in the domain of Shane Falk, when he left in 2014 or so he tells investigators, he turned it over to Nathan Yudnick, his colleague. And then we know, according to this report, that the GAB and staff held on to this thing into 2015, perhaps late into 2015, and suddenly it disappears. 
into thin air. Well, now it sounds, that, does that sound familiar from people who have watched this sort of thing well, in other areas? Well, yeah, but you know, my military experience tells me that once you sign for something, if yours is the last signature they can find that signed for it, it's your hide. In the military. In the military, you sign everything in triplicate, don't you? Well, yeah, and you make sure that you, you don't hand you do. anyone a piece of equipment unless they give you their signature in return. And if you're the guy with the last signature on it, what happens to you in the military? You, you get, uh, if it's a piece of equipment, you get the statement of charges. If it's classified information, you're the one being brought up on charges. Apparently not in the Government Accountability Board in the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office. As we've learned. So using government resources to help a political candidate or one party is... Pretty serious stuff, one way to put it, of course. Uh, after all, Milwaukee DA John Chisholm started John Doe 1 because he thought a county worker, Darlene Wink, posted a comment online about Scott Walker during work hours. She wound up on probation. So here you have key leadership at a government agency, one focused on ethics, no less, deliberately and methodically using their positions of authority to gather quote unquote opposition research on Republicans. What kind of legal consequences do they now face having apparently just ignored a judge's decision? Uh, well, the short answer thus far is none. Right. Um, we'll get into what the future could promise, promise is not the word, could hold uh, coming up in just a minute. But isn't it interesting that you have an agency created in 2007 legislation implemented in 2008 by the name of the Government Accountability Board when you have, according to the Department of Justice investigation, just a complete and utter lack of accountability a complete and utter lack of transparency. Well, of course, some of that is by design because the John Doe procedure in the state of Wisconsin, which these bureaucrats in the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office used, is tied to a gag order, and a nefarious gag order at that, one that uh, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals judge, Frank Easterbrook, called screamingly unconstitutional. Under a John Doe, at least at the time in these uh, political-oriented investigations, people who were targeted, people who were witnesses in the probe, could say nothing about their homes being raided, and there were many who had their homes raided, nothing about being interrogated for hours, and there were many who were interrogated. If they said anything, even to their spouses, they could go to jail for six months and face thousands of dollars in fines. And that wasn't just something that was part of the law, it was something that was communicated to them every time the prosecutors and the investigators reached out to them, say anything. They even did that to a 16-year-old kid, Ola. A 16-year-old kid who was home alone at the time when law enforcement agents served uh, warrants, coordinated warrants, coordinated raids, pre-dawn armed raids on the homes of several Wisconsin citizens. A 16-year-old was home alone at the time. And the law enforcement agent said, let us in, we've got a warrant. He said, my parents aren't here, we don't care. And he was forced uh, to let these people in and go about the business for the three and a half hours they were there of rooting through his family's possessions. He had to go to school and he was told by investigators, don't tell your principal why you're late. Don't tell your schoolmates why you're late for school. Don't tell anybody or you could go to jail. That's how awful all of this stuff was. 
And so we have an accountability board that has not been held accountable. We have district attorneys, uh, agents not held accountable. Uh, there is a taste now for accountability after the Department of Justice report. One of the things that we may see out of this is a move by uh, uh, lawmakers to create a committee that's been talked about for a long time that would have subpoena power to investigate the investigators to get more of this information and to use the information that we already have for prosecution. One thing is I, I, you can almost bank on. With this report, these latest revelations, there will be lawsuits. Well, yeah, we could easily talk about this story for hours, and we already have. <laughs> yeah. But there are a couple other news items we do need to touch on today. First of all, Congress is still negotiating the tax reform bill. The House and the Senate passed their own versions, and so it's up to the conference committee to combine them. And then, then each chamber will get to vote again. We'll be watching that one closely, so stay tuned. And the other piece of news is the McIver Institute hosted conservative commentator Guy Benson last week. And I got to interview him about the tax reform plan and some of the rhetoric surrounding it. Some of the polling shows that a majority of Americans think they'll get a tax hike because the Democrats just keep saying it. It's not true. And if it passes, which I suspect it will, there's going to be a lot of Americans expecting a tax increase because of this Armageddon, and then they're going to pay their taxes and realize, oh, we were lied to. You know, it's, I can't even remember which website it was, but it was, you know, one of the big ones where I was reading their analysis on the tax reform plan, and they had it to where most, most Americans are going to get a tax increase. And yep. I'm trying to figure out how the heck are they doing this? And I'm looking at their source, I'm going through, and then I realized that they're looking, they're using projections for 20 10 years in the future. 2027. Based off of all the, um, every the uh, the state of, of things in 2017. Yeah. So this is, this is actually, some of the stuff that they say, is completely made up. Just completely made up. They're talking about a private jet tax break. That is an idea authored by a liberal Democrat. That's not a tax break. Um, Sherrod, it's a Sherrod Brown provision. Uh, they, I've seen whizzing around, there were no hearings and no amendments on the bill. Completely wrong. Full hearings, markup, amendments in both houses, normal legislative process. Um, I heard that, oh, they're, they're getting rid of the mortgage deduction, uh, mortgage interest deduction, so, you know, there's no point in buying a home ever again. I, like, it, Don't go to college like, either. Yeah, not not true. <laughs> yeah. uh, the the mortgage interest deduction is one of them that they kept. Um, there's a few differences between the House and Senate bills, but it it remains there. Um, with every current mortgage grandfathered in under the House plan, and then they're probably going to end up somewhere around. Uh, you get the mortgage interest deduction up to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is much bigger than the vast majority of mortgages in America. Um, so that was just made up. Then there's other parts of this that are just uh, distortions. Um, one example being the Senate bill is going to rip 13 million people off of health care. No. It repeals the individual mandate that could lead some number of millions to decide not to buy a product that they don't want uh, or can't afford 
and forego subsidies. That is not a tax increase. That is not stripping them of health care. They're not losing, quote unquote, coverage. They're not being, um, th their coverage isn't being taken away. They're being liberated to make a choice for themselves. And also the 13 million number is based on this wildly exaggerated uh, CBO estimate on the power of the individual mandate that has been disproven through the actual numbers of enrollment for years. I mean, they were way off and have been way off every single year of Obamacare's existence. Uh, I think by this point, CBO said we should have something like 26 million people signed up through the, through the uh, marketplaces, and it's the actual number is less than 10 million. I mean, just way off. Uh, and, and another distortion is exactly what you just said. This is a cherry-picked, deeply misleading number where they say, majority of Americans are going to get a tax increase under the bill. That requires them to ignore all of the tax cuts that would occur from 2018 to 2026, pretend that none of those existed, and the, cum the cumulative billions and billions of taxes saved by people, um, thousands of dollars for middle-class families um, over that period of time. And then to assume that middle-class tax breaks in the bill would expire in 2027. This is a ridiculous assumption. The Bush tax cuts, which the Democrats yelled and screamed about, nearly 90% of them were made permanent by Barack Obama in 2012 because they were scheduled to expire, and no one has the political will to raise taxes on the middle class. And so the vast majority of those Bush tax cuts were made permanent by Barack Obama. That's the exact same dynamic here. What these, what these uh, dishonest analyses suggest is that the Senate bill will prevail. The House bill, there is no expiration. The Senate bill, there is an expiration of these individual family rates. And by saying that there'll be a tax increase, they are conceding that there are middle-class tax cuts in the bill that would expire. That's what they, hypothetical future expiration of tax cuts is what they are calling a tax increase when there is every reason to believe that those tax increases would be prevented because they have been in the recent past on this exact issue. Um, so they cherry pick a hypothetical year 10 years from now with assumptions that are ludicrous. And that's what they focus on to drum up this bogus talking point that it's a tax increase. It's not. The overwhelming majority of all American households, including the overwhelming majority of all middle class tax uh, payers, will get a tax cut under the bill. And I think the, the simplest way to explain this is to illustrate it is using numbers that even the New York Times had in their analysis when they actually look, and I wrote about this at town, I've written a lot about this myth busting at town hall, which is why I have all these facts uh, at my fingertips. I happen to have been writing about it intensively for the last few weeks. The New York Times analysis backed up by the Tax Policy Center, which is left-leaning, more than backed up by the Tax Foundation, which is a little bit more right-leaning. They're much more bullish on this stuff. And even the Joint Committee on Taxation, the nonpartisan congressional group, they all agree that there's Middle, there's tax cuts on average across every income group in America under the Republican proposals. And the New York Times analysis showed 
that if you are someone, if you're a family or an individual who files your taxes and you take the standard deduction, which is 70% of all Americans, seven out of 10 taxpayers take the standard deduction, and that number is going to grow, by the way, the standard deduction is doubling under the Republican plan. You are a winner. Virtually every American who takes a standard deduction is a winner under the plan and getting a tax cut. That's 70% right out of the gate. And so I had some liberals coming back on me on Twitter saying, whoa, but what about, what about the people who itemized? And I said, okay, so you are conceding that 70 plus percent of Americans are getting a tax cut already. Yes. And they have to sort of grumble because they've accidentally just proven that point. And then of the middle class tax payers who are itemizers, so part of that roughly quarter of middle class taxpayers who itemize, a supermajority of them also get a tax cut, even after itemization. So I think it's important for Republicans to acknowledge that there will be some losers under the plan. There will be a small fraction, 8 to 12 percent, of middle class taxpayers who will see their taxes go up. Um, it's disproportionately higher income, high tax, blue state uh, people who won't be able to deduct all of their high state and local taxes the way they have in the past. That's been limited, which I think is actually the right thing to do in terms of policy. But there will be a fraction of people who will see a tax increase. But the overwhelming vast majority will get a tax cut. And that's just a proven fact. Um, and they can howl and distort and repeat ad nauseum that it's a middle class tax hike or it doesn't help the middle class. Those are verifiably provable lies. We'll be releasing the entire interview in a special supplemental podcast later this week where a guy will talk about Wisconsin's leadership in confronting the radical left. He's a good guy. Yeah, yeah, he's never heard that before either. I'm sure not. <laughs> He, he probably you know, gets very confusing, you know, talking to some of these politicians who call everybody guy. Hey, guy, you're hey. doing a good job. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, typically, we talk about the most unreported story of the week, but, Matt, I don't think there's much debate about what that story would be this week. Uh, no, not, not at all. While the John Doe story and the Department of Justice's bombshell report did get a fair amount of coverage, it was interesting how it was covered. Originally, we had some reports from members of the media with uh, this notion that the Attorney General will not be pressing charges in the John Doe leak investigation because he found no wrongdoing. And I had uh, the opportunity to talk to the Attorney General on the radio last week. When I interviewed him, he said, that is patently false. It's like they didn't even read the report. The report is replete with violations, criminal misconduct in office, privacy problems, even the theft of documents. This is a report that really shows government abuse, abuse of power, and criminality. And it just simply was not reported that way. And then ultimately you will get, and we did get a number of stories looking to defend the uh, abusers in this case, which is seemingly so often the want of a number of news organizations covering the John Doe story. You know, and it's, to me, I can't help but notice the complete lack of coverage nationally 
And I can't help but think if the shoe were on the other foot, we'd be seeing screaming headlines on, say, USA Today all week long. Oh, but the shoe was on the other foot, Bill. You remember Ola back in 2014 when the erroneous leaks from the court involving the John Doe, this is one of many uh, issues or problems where information was leaked out, where we had the headlines from the New York Times, the Washington Post, to the LA Times, to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the Wisconsin State Journal screaming Walker involved in criminal scheme. Of course, those newspapers had to walk back that because the prosecutors had to walk back that uh, a, a few days later on this whole criminal scheme notion. But yeah, they have uh, certainly reacted quickly when it looked like Governor Scott Walker was the central focus and that they could create or push the narrative of some sort of criminality involved. But not so fast when it comes to the criminality of the people investigating the Walker campaign and uh, 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 scores of conservatives. One piece that did strike my uh, attention uh, in this case nationally one particular piece in the Wall Street Journal by a senator who uh, some of us may be pretty familiar with. Do you want to tell us a little about that? What yeah. happened there? Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the areas. I don't think about all of the awful things that occurred in the John Doe investigation. I didn't even get a chance to really go into that. But we talked about all of these private citizens, their information taken. But it also focused on lawmakers previously unknown were targeted in the John Doe, too including 150 emails found between Senator Leah Vukmir and her daughter on private matters, private issues including medical uh, discussions. That's how nefarious this thing was. And um, Leah Vukmir discovered, along with the rest of us, that she was targeted when that report came out last week. And you can imagine how stunned she was. How stunned anybody would be to find out that, yes, they were in the crosshairs of the John Doe investigators. She wrote a very interesting piece on that experience in the Wall Street Journal, and ultimately, at the end of the day, she said, this is about justice, and justice needs to be served. It's not just the uh, law enforcement officials who are supposed to uphold justice who are responsible for seeing justice served. We need to have justice served against those who violated the public trust. So to segue to our next regular segment, when it comes to who had a good week last week and who had a bad week, Matt, who are your picks? <laughs> well, in terms of bad week, you have to say that the old Government Accountability Board and its staff, the Kevin Kennedys, the Shane Falks, uh, the Mike Haas, uh, who we forgot to note, is now the, the, uh, the executive director of the new election committee. And he's involved, as this report uh, shows, in editing the warrants served in the John Doe 2 investigation. Uh, all of those folks, including the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office, Francis Schmitz, the special prosecutor, it was a bad week for them, no doubt. I would say a good week in many respects for the conservatives targeted because I think there was a good deal of validation in the Attorney General's report. You know, there were some folks, conservative targets early on, who told me when I began investigating this that the John Doe in the state of Wisconsin was nothing more than taxpayer-funded opposition research. 
what does the Department of Justice report find? That there were John Doe documents in a file labeled opposition research. It got even darker than those conservatives imagined. Um, Ola? I know you had a good week at least. <laughs> That's right, Bill. I personally won the good week category as I was on vacation last week. But uh, for the sake of the podcast, I'll stick to policy. It sounds like tax reform had a good week. Uh, Congress is moving forward on a consensus. We're in that conference committee, and we'll see what happens next there. Bad week, as we've all mentioned. I got to say, bad week for the mainstream media, who clearly missed the mark with the initial coverage of the latest John Doe revelations, saying that because the DOJ isn't immediately pressing charges anyone, that there was no wrongdoing here. Mm -hmm. As the Attorney General himself said, and you both have said, make no mistake, crimes were committed. Now, I've already identified Ola as having the good week, but as for the bad week, I'm actually going to have to say the victims of John Doe. They learned the investigators intruded into their personal lives far deeper than they ever realized, and they have little hope at this point that the state will try to prosecute the responsible parties. Yeah, yeah listen, uh, if past is prologue, that's what we found out before. Maybe something changes, Bill. Maybe the effort by folks like Senator Dave Craig looking to set up this committee that would investigate the investigators leads to eventual charges. Maybe some of these folks lose their licenses for not being very good attorneys. I don't know, but we've seen no evidence of that so far. And the McIver Institute will continue to lead the coverage on this story as it continues to develop, whether it's over the next few months or continues for years to come. Seven years in the making right now, and we have yet to write the last chapter of this dark chapter in Wisconsin history. And on that happy note, thank you for joining us today for the McIver Report, Wisconsin This Week. Make sure to check out our website, www.mckiverinstitute.com, for all the latest capital news. And make sure to subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and or Google Play. See you next week. Be well. God bless.